0: Should be able to hear the magnetic
1: resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The age of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the Event Horizon. Good morning or afternoon or evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the event horizon where the impossible happens. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us today, we have the author of
0: the Internet Apocalypse Trilogy, uh, Wayne Gladstone. Welcome to the show, Wayne.
2: Thank you both very much for having me.
0: Thank you for being had. No way. <laughs> The,
1: the books are um, the books are unusual to say the least uh, this is um
0: are they fiction let's just make sure that this is fiction
2: well uh, I guess you asked that because um, the protagonist in the trilogy uh, is, shares the same name as I do uh, Wayne Gladstone
0: and reality is such a slippery thing in these books
2: uh that's true that's true you have to really uh doubt the uh, diff- at various points the uh, narrator's perceptions but um hopefully uh hopefully it's very much fiction although uh the protagonist shares my name and my uh semitic good looks uh <laughs> he's uh hopefully far more dysfunctional than i am and uh the reason i named him after me is because uh, when the book was in its nascent stage and was started as a uh, serialized novella on a website called crack.com, uh, that website didn't have fiction on it. And I thought it would be easier for the, the readers to kind of get into that world if I sort of adapted – if I kind of put it in the persona of Gladstone that I'd already created on that mm-hmm. website. When it became time to get published, I thought about changing his name because that was no longer a consideration, and ultimately, I decided to to leave his name the same as mine, because I have this tiny smidgen of fake internet fame, you know, social media following, readers on Cracked, and I thought if I kept it the same name, it might be a good way to help examine the issue of what is the difference between your persona online and who you really are as a person. And that's the reason I ultimately kept the name the same as mine.
1: So the first book uh, it is the uh, – Notes,
0: I mean, Notes from the Internet Apocalypse.
1: Correct. And um, it, the, the premise is that the Internet just goes off one day and nobody knows why. And uh, the entire world falls into a panic. And yep. uh, nobody can relate to being in real life. And they they can only relate to one another uh, in the ways that they did when the internet still worked.
0: And they'll get together and have chat rooms.
1: Yeah, and uh, there are various roving gangs. There are redditors and and uh, uh, digs and uh,
2: circles and YouTube circles, and yeah. YouTube
1: circles, and you know, I, I, well, of course, you know, you wrote it, but. Uh, uh but nobody can relate to anything and everybody's taking selfies hoping that the internet will come back soon so they can post them and nobody can relate to anybody and <laughs> right. it's the-
0: someone and everybody's looking for someone to fix it for them and somehow Mr Gladstone is declared the internet messiah
2: Right that's that's really the thrust of book 1 which is uh the broadest satire of the three and I had to uh, kind of think about it as a thought experiment in the sense that um the internet is gone but it's you know electricity still works like the radio wave still mm-hmm. works everything is exactly the same uh, except the internet is missing so it kind of forced me to examine what would people miss most about that world and for me, I, I think it's three things, and this is what I thought really in 2011 when I started writing, and I still, still feel the same way today. Uh, I think the three most important things on the internet is a way to interact, communicate, mm-hmm. connect person to person. It's um, the quickest way to procure knowledge. I think we remember mm-hmm. things less and search for things more. And the third, porn. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh-huh. you know, some people were put off by how uh, the more satirically purient sections of the book. But, but uh, would would you? I mean, uh, the, I try to write stylistically. I don't whether you like them or not. They're not the same book three times, right? Oh, absolutely kind of-
0: not. They're very different, and and the you know the first book plays a part in the the second book. Book one is is. A po- an important part of book two because everybody's handing around this book which is the first book
2: correct um so as you mentioned despite the fact that gladstone is incredibly dysfunctional uh and uh, goes looking for the internet with the help of uh, a gossip blogger and a 24 year old australian webcam girl against all uh logic he's deemed the internet messiah by a psychic who's uh, come into some renown, this guy named Jeeves, who's like a human search engine, is setting up in Times Square. Has a vision and proclaims him the Internet Messiah, um, which doesn't seem intuitively obvious at all because he's kind of an f up. But <laughs> uh huh,
1: yeah, he kind books, of is.
2: Which is, you know, it got a lot. Of the book one got a lot of uh, good reviews, but it did mm-hmm. get one notoriously bad review that called it fan fiction. Because uh, I guess the character's name is Gladstone. But for anyone who's read the book, would you want to be that dude? That guy's a sad dude. I couldn't understand yeah, yeah, what the point of, of that review he, was. Yeah, he's but
1: kind of a mess. I mean he's not he's – uh,
2: He's a huge mess. And if you finish the whole book, which I don't think this reviewer did, he's even more of a mess than you realize at the start. But uh, book two, he goes off to L.A. and he tries to put his uh, his life together. Um, and fix the, the missing holes in his life and when that fails to happen because he has nothing else going on in his life, he kind of picks up the mantle of Internet Messiah because uh, as Susan just said, his diary from book one, book one itself goes quote unquote paper viral in book two because people have nothing to read they have no internet and these photocopies get passed around and suddenly there's this whole uh, ethos around this gladstone character he's the one who's going to solve the net so book two is much more of kind of a, a thriller and anonymous gets involved and we start picking up the clues of maybe finding out who the good guys are who the bad guys are who took the net and maybe how we can start to get it back
1: uh, the whole thing relies on the conceit, of course, that the net is a single thing that uh, that one can steal.
2: Well, that's what correct the the in book one. There's a line where uh, Gladstone says to his friend Toby, "What the hell does that even mean? It's not like the Pink Panther diamond; you can't steal it. It's not a tangible thing." Um, and each book becomes much more technically accurate. I did a, it wasn't necessary, I don't want to give any spoilers, mm-hmm. but for the way book one is set up, it wasn't very necessary to do a lot of research, because the net was whatever my protagonist thought the net was. Mm-hmm. But books two and three become incredibly increasingly based in the real world, and what you learn, if you read a great book by Andrew Blum called uh, Tubes, that despite... All the specifics and technicalities of the internet. In many ways, it is still very simple. It, the world is physically connected by cable. You know, it is one power. There are about five places in the world where the little e communities attach up to other e communities like a mm-hmm. giant power strip to connect the whole world.
1: You know, what, one it, of the one of the major hubs where that happens is in Virginia.
2: There's a hub in Virginia. There's mm-hmm. a hub in Hudson Street in New York. I think there's five. There might be seven, but there's no more than seven. And in the early days of the Internet, uh, the Australia Internet, I think it was called AussieNet. And basically the, the country of Australia was late on its internet bill and they just shut off their internet. They just closed down a hub and the entire country had no internet in the 90s until they paid their bill. And it's amazing when you think about it that although it's very sophisticated, it's not really that much different from telephone cable. The world is physically connected through cable for internet.
1: Yeah, it's, and it's uh – uh Really, just a lot of wire. I mean, it's right. uh, correct. Uh, there, there are there are fiber optic trunks that go everywhere, but uh, uh, that is not most of the internet. Most of the internet is travels over regular telephone wires, or right. or, and, or cable wires. You know, for, cable, for TV the cable
2: ocean, buried in the ocean, connecting mm-hmm. continent to continent. It's
0: amazing it all still works.
2: Yeah. And so, so basically there's two, and the book gets into, into both of this. If you wanted to disable the internet, there's really two big ways. One is disrupting it at the hubs. Mm -hmm. Because you take up one hub and you, you cause major delays. And the other one, and this, you see this in book three, is with the security protocols. And in that sense, you know, when you go to online to your bank, you go to Citibank and you type in Citibank.com. That's just a placeholder. I mean, the real website is, you know, 139862 backslash ampersand. Mm -hmm. And it's the international committee called ICANN, which makes sure and verifies that when you type in Citibank, it actually goes to that more complicated address, or you could accidentally deposit $10,000 into like Chuck's bank (laughs) account. Yeah. And I don't know, about a month ago, there was a big DNS protocol attack and, and Twitter mm-hmm. was down for like most of the day. I
1: remember that. Um, big, right. big that's, that's major attack, attack on the uh, on the domain name servers uh, that keep track of which machine has which address and which names are assigned to those numbers.
2: That's right. And it's an international committee and it's not beholden allegedly to any specific government. and And I had to spend a lot of time Learning about their protocols because that plays a huge part uh, in book three, and you know, there's a lot of very weird, hard to believe stuff in book three. It's it's true. The hardest stuff to believe that <laughs> I can in book three is actually true. Uh, I'll give you one example. There's basically so so they they make the security codes to verify all the web addresses. And in order to do that, they have like a meeting of like 20 highly venerated coders, and they put it on an over-screen projector, and they have a packet in their hand, and they all approve of the code line by line by line, and those are the security protocols that verify the addresses, and they put it in a safe. And there's only like six people in the world that have the key to that safe. But if something something happens to those six people, right? Okay, so – in that case, or or what if the ICANN itself is blown up with a bomb with a terrorist attack? Then there's like 12 other people that have half-keys that when they put them together recreate the code that's in their safe. Okay, but what if those 12 people in the world with the half-keys are killed? And what if the six people with the real keys to the safe are killed but ICANN still exists? What do they do then? And the true answer is… Well they just drill with a power drill through the safe.
1: Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my god. So there's
2: like a million protocols and at the end of the day, it's really just code in a safe that if shit hit the fan, you'd take a drill and find it. And so that sounds like that's like one of the most hard to believe things uh in the trilogy, and that one's actually based completely in fact.
1: <laughs> that's astonishing. I had never heard that before.
2: Yeah. That's I'll tell you astonishing. something else with truth being stranger than fiction. In the first book, I uh, I made the Net Recovery Act, um, which was supposed to be a comment on how draconian the Patriot Act was and how draconian NDAA signed uh, by Barack Obama was. Uh, it seemed to me whether you had a Republican or a Democrat as president, you still had this legislation that was increasingly uh, imposing upon civil liberties in pursuit of the war on terror so i was making my net recovery act and i said well let me think of something that i find completely egregious i'll make a leg- i'll make a bill that says as long as you're looking for the internet you can lock up anyone you want for any reason at all uh just as long as you suspect they might know something about the internet and you can hold them for 48 hours with no lawyer no charges and no right to a hearing and then president obama signed ndaa which allows the U.S. government, as long as it's pursuing someone suspected of terrorism, allows them to hold them up with no lawyer and no trial indefinitely. So I had to make my fake draconian statute more draconian to catch up with real life. I had to make it worse to make it as bad as the reality we live in.
1: Oh, my God.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. And it's not don't tough even know enough. The CIA is, but we live in a country where you can be arrested and held without a lawyer or trial forever if you're quote unquote suspected of being a terrorist, and what suspected means is not defined in the statute.
1: And it could be any. And it could be and now, literally that's anything. The
2: good news is it gets better. Now, in in two months, Donald Trump will have that power. So it, the good news keeps coming.
0: <sighs>
1: Oh, boy.
0: We do try to stay away from politics
2: in this show, well, no, but no. it's really that's hard to... Things. It doesn't matter. It's, a de- it's not a Democrat issue. It's not a Republican issue. That statute passed unanimously in both houses. You, with Bush, you had the Patriot Act. With Obama, you had NDAA. It's not political. It's just reality. They, you, it doesn't matter. I don't think anyone can be offended as a Republican or a Democrat by that legislation. Yeah. So, uh, But that's it. That's it for politics, but... uh that was my point. And that's, and that's also why I thought it was more interesting to set the universe under a democratic administration. Because in, in draconian, in dystopian fiction, you know, they usually make the government like some sort of fascist, obvious, mm-hmm. uh, totalitarian state. And I thought it would be more interesting to explore the kind of abuses to civil liberties we might experience even under a more liberal administration.
1: Well, and you, you do have a point, and that is that uh, uh, civil liberty, civil civil liberties. Rented tongue. Um, I get the real one back next week.
0: I want to rent it.
1: <laughs> the uh, civil liberties are often most egregiously eroded uh, under the guise of benevolence.
2: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Exactly, and 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 Special Agent Rosdauer, who's a minor character in book one, bigger character in book two, and a huge character in book three, he's like an NSA guy who is cracking down and perpetuating uh, this net recovery act. And by book three, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say he's no longer working for the government, and so really what motivates him is trying to undo – and kind of clear his conscience to a some expect to some respect for for the actions he took in the earlier books
1: the the uh, the books do this great turning in on themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the first book sets up the situation. And, uh, you have this great suspension of disbelief that has to happen in order for you to read the book and, and just sort of, you have to sort of go with it. And then by book two, you understand why it's that way.
2: And, right. uh. And also you're doing a sensational job of not spoiling things. Thank you.
1: We've had a lot of practice. And, uh, uh, the way the plot. Uh, the story arc for the three books folds over on itself so completely uh, is is unusual in uh, in my experience. The Mobius
0: not, book, you have to go back and read the first one again once you're done.
1: Yeah, you have to. It's like it's uh, uh, Philip Jose Farmer's Dahlgren.
0: That was <laughs> uh, Samuel Delaney, sweet.
1: Samuel Delaney, Samuel Ordenlaney, uh, 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 his book Dahlgren. Uh was kind of like that. The end is the beginning, uh, although he took it to a much more literal uh, interpretation of that. Uh, you do have to you do have to go back and reread book one so that you fully understand book three.
2: Yeah, in in, in some sense, I mean, the good news is, well, let me put you this way: I mean, we were talking about this before we were on air. Book one is the shortest book; it has the most jokes in it. It's the dirtiest book. <laughs> um it's the broadest sat- satirical book, but I also think it's the most demanding. Uh it, and the reason I made it so the chapters are short, uh and it's it's it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't overstay its welcome on any one topic topic it kind of phonetically jumps from one thing to one thing to one thing and part of the reason i did that was because i really felt book one needed to be read twice and once you get to the end and you understand who gladstone is and what he's about if you go back and reread it it's so obvious there's a clue put on literally every five pages Mm -hmm. and i guess without giving anything too much of a spoiler let me just say this in a sentence I think it seems like Gladstone has his stuff together a lot more as you're reading it than maybe he actually does because he cracks jokes. And I think, you know, as as, as long as you're making jokes, people assume you're okay. Uh, Boy, is that
0: not true.
2: (laughs) It's not true at all, right?
0: I I crack jokes when I'm under pressure all the time.
2: Correct. Correct. And, you know, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's the opposite of true. But it's not a good indicator. And, uh, and you know, you find yourself, so you know, in many ways Gladstone's lying to himself in the book, and I, my goal was to get the reader to lie to themselves a little bit. But after that, book two, I, book two and three, I think are very, I don't mean they're, I don't think they're, they're simple, simplistic or, 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 or facile, but they're straightforward. You know, book two is a conventional kind of thriller. And book three is kind of a kind of a faux noir with a with a new protagonist, not a new protagonist, but a new narrator in uh, Special Agent Rosdower.
0: Well, people have to buy all three books because you know that's the only way you're going to get a complete story out of it.
2: Right. E- each book does have its own plot, but if you want to know who took the internet, how they took it, and if we get it back, yes, you need to buy all three books. That's my story, and I'm
0: sticking to it.
2: Yeah, but I mean, I don't want to, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, I think you find out something important at the end of book one.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I think you have a whole, uh, you know, that's book two. The drive for book two is they're trying to find the internet phone book. And as weird as that sounds, that's true too. In the early days of the internet, there were so few people who had email addresses. Uh, and they were still so in their 20th century mindset, they're like, well we should make a phone book. You know, everyone has a phone book, phone number is in the phone book. Everyone who has an email address should be in an internet phone book. And so there was like 20 people, and it had their name, and it was an F-book order, and had their address, and had their email address. And then it grew to like 100 people, and then 200 people. And then when it was like a phone book of like 500 people, they finally said, wait, what the hell are we doing? This is stupid. The whole world is going to have an email address. And so the premise, so that's all true, but the premise of book two was that even after they stopped making the internet phone book, they started making a new one, not of people with email addresses, but of the people with the real power to control the internet, the the power brokers of the net. And the goal, and Anonymous tells Gladstone in book two, if he can find the latest iteration of the secret internet phone book, he will limit the list of suspects of those people who have basically enough juice to disable it. And so that's really the main, like, no uh thriller plot of two and uh I don't want to give the impression that it's only one story split into three books. You know. Each each book does have its own agenda and that's book two's agenda.
1: Yeah the uh the I can't remember the name of the uh the head of anonymous the, the big well not the head of the anonymous but the 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 big frontman uh that In he meets book? Uh,
2: yes, he's got a very classy name, Queef Monster Forty
1: Two. <laughs> yes, I remember. Okay, Queef Monster Forty Two. Uh, he sort of presents himself as a sort of Morpheus, you know, as though, uh, uh, as though he were from the Matrix. And uh,
2: that's absolutely true. There's a lot of Matrix stuff going. On. I mean, you know, and Gladstone is the chosen one, right? So, I mean, it's the classic – it's like, you know, it, 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 I would have to say that Star Wars played a large uh, influence uh, on the trilogy because uh, the protagonist starts as maybe even more disabled than a mere Luke Skywalker farm boy, and he ends up maybe being a touch less impressive than an all-powerful Jedi master. But still, he has a very large arc, and – um
0: and his Obi-Wan so, is still a bastard.
2: <laughs> yes. Yes. But, you know, I didn't know how to write a book, too. I thought, that's really hard. How do you write a book, too? How do you write a middle? So so I tried to think of trilogies. And, of course, you know, when you think of trilogies, you think of movies more than, than books. So I thought, what is the best book, two of all – The movie, two of all time? And I think, you know, we can fight about this. But – I'm going to go down swinging if Empire Strikes Back. And and that's, that is that is one of
0: the <sighs> of standard answers. The other standard answer in our genre would be aliens, which took an entirely different direction.
2: Okay, well, uh, yes. Look, I don't want to get into a fistfight, uh-huh. but, uh, but no, it's not aliens. <laughs> I know everyone loves aliens, but... You're right. It took it in a different direction. I love Alien because it's sci-fi. I dislike Aliens because it's Rambo in space. (laughs) I also dislike any movie where you create a device solely for using it later, meaning that stupid box lifter thing that Sigourney Weaver uses to move boxes. No. Oh, the humanoid forklift? created that so she could fight an alien in the final scene. But this is my own hatred of James Cameron playing playing out. I apologize. Um, Empire Strikes Back. What's the key to that movie? All the good guys get their ass kicked. So I figured that if I was going to write a book two, I had to have the good guys get their ass kicked in book two to make part three the most rewarding. And I thought as long as I didn't have any furry teddy bear Ewoks in book three, the whole trilogy might be good.
1: Well and that's that that goes along with uh how you construct a story for a single book as well you know about halfway through uh things get the get to be their darkest before they that's, get better They can or get pretty heavy ha- you have to have that inversion or it's not interesting it's not a it's not a story
2: the halfway point is a very difficult part of any novel or screenplay uh that's you know what you're really getting at there and mm-hmm. it is it's 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 an incredible it's the i find it's the hardest the hardest beat to find is the halfway point and uh there's a much maligned book on screenwriting that i love save, called save, save the cat
1: save the cat yep i have a copy
2: i think it's excellent I mean, I don't
1: I know why it's maligned. I mean, it's well,
2: it's, it's maligned because he says things like "Legally Blonde" is the greatest movie ever made, and "Memento" is a piece of crap. <laughs> That's why people hate it. But having said that, I love "Memento" and "Legally Blonde," and that beat sheet is amazing, right? Oh yeah,
1: yeah. If if you've if you've got that beat sheet figured out, uh, you know, you can you can basically chart out your whole book. Based Correct. based on that, or your, I, or your I did. screenplay,
2: I, I have uh, one screenplay and three novels. All of them conform to the Save the Cat beat sheet, which is like literally the least hip thing you can say right now. It's like a very eye rolly thing because it makes it sound like you want to write like miscongeniality, like some sort of box office fodder. But as Blake Snyder says in that book, you know, Legally Blonde. Schindler's List, Jaws, It's a Wonderful Life, they all adhere to that beat sheet. That beat sheet is not limiting. If you use that beat sheet, it doesn't mean you have to write a piece of commercial fodder with no soul. It just helps you structure any story you want to tell. Right. And I think it's fantastic.
1: Well, the whole point of it is that, uh, you know, he's not setting out rules. What he's doing is he's making an observation that, uh, that, uh, That every successful story that's, that's well received by, uh, by its audience has followed this pattern and he figured out what the pattern was and wrote it down.
2: That's right. No, it's not. I I know I keep saying it's maligned because it is, but I think it's brilliant. I've, I've read that beat sheet, those 20 pages. I've easily read them a hundred times in my life. Where I just my goal was to internalize that, and uh, the the beats are hardest to see in my first book because, again, without giving anything away, uh, the the obvious facts of the story this happens, that happens, that's not what conforms to the beat sheet. What conforms to the beat sheet is the state of Gladstone's mind. Mm-hmm. So um, the beats are more hidden, but. It, are, are very very obvious and that midpoint that you talked about is key you really need a a false victory or a false loss you know you think you're all done and everything's going to be okay or you think you're defeated and nothing can be okay that's really where like 90% of all great stories where they're at once they're halfway done
1: yeah I, I agree with you it's uh the uh it's a painful reality that that writers have to face, and that is that uh, the structure of the stories that we write uh, are much more rigid than than anybody really supposes, you know, and that there are reasons for them being the way they are. It's almost like Sumerian literature, really. Uh, they had their stories, they were told in a certain precise way, uh, or they just weren't stories. And, right. uh, it, it hasn't changed a whole lot in 3,000 years.
2: But what, what I, what people should realize and what it took me a long time to realize is, um, just because you say something is rigid or there are, are rules, first of all, even, Snyder acknowledges you can certainly break the rules, just understand how you're breaking them and why. So that's the first thing. But aside from that, it in, having a framework in no way limits the kind of story you want to tell. You know, it's weird. When I was a kid, I loved big stories, right? I loved like Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars. I loved The Wall. I loved 1984. I loved Brazil. I loved all these like Big, epic things. But when it came time for me to write, for some reason I thought I should be writing like Raymond Carver short stories about like a trucker who's lonely driving into a diner at 3 a.m. and he eats a grilled cheese and he sees a waitress and thinks about a lost love. For some reason I was under this weird notion that real literature had to be like small and earnest. And it really wasn't until about six or seven years ago when I got really into the Doctor Who reboot, mm-hmm. and I started literally bawling at about seventy-five percent of the David Tennant episodes. I mean, a li- I mean, this never happened to me before or after in my life. Three quarters of the David Tennant Doctor Who's would reduce me to tears because they were big big stories about the meaning of life the meaning of love and even so much as to say is some of those stories made you feel like you even got to know god in a deeper way mm-hmm. and that's not an exaggeration I, but that i realized why am i writing small why am i writing small earnest stories there's nothing more uh legitimate about that art form art form and even though i was still now using the save the cat beat sheet mm-hmm. small tight rigid structure form i tried to tell big big stories of large consequence so uh yeah you can tell any kind of story in that beat sheet
1: yeah and it it it's really just a structure you know and and as i was saying earlier it's it is an observation as to how stories are built not his arbitrary definition or explanation of it right so
2: yeah, and I mean, you know, the only thing I don't agree, I mean, I, I, I think I like the exceptions more than he does, you know. I love Memento. <laughs> Even mm-hmm. if he does I love a film that's told backwards. Yeah.
0: Well, so they're, they're, he, that movie was breaking rules too.
2: Right. Completely. And, uh, another movie... it's not Memento, it came out at a similar time. The Machinist, I would have to say. You know, some people, um, Compared book one to Shutter Island or or Fight Club or, uh, you know, some of the most famous examples of books with unreliable narrators. And I, th- I like both those books, but I think those are shitty, simplistic comparisons. But what no one has compared it to, which I think had a big influence, was a uh, Christian Bell movie called The Machinist. I don't know if either of you seen that. That's the one where he like dropped down to like 90 pounds.
0: Yeah, uh, that was scary. I thought he was going to really damage his body doing that. He did.
2: Oh, right, <laughs> he yeah. needed, like, medical assistance. But but that, that if you look, uh, that that movie, completely unconsciously, I was not aware as I was doing it, had a huge, huge influence on the first novel. The whole idea of being haunted by something and taking a whole movie to work through accepting a specific fact— is something that's in that movie, and that is also in book one.
0: Yeah, you're right.
2: <laughs> yeah, the more you think about it, yeah. the more, the more, the more similarities there are. But no one has ever said that except me, right now here to you two lovely people.
0: We ought to have a, a list of your cultural literacy before reading these books.
2: Well, there's also a, I don't know if you're a Bowie fan, but Bowie yeah. died. Yes, Bowie Bowie was my end all be all, uh, and
1: immediately the world starts going to hell.
2: Right, right, and um, I was way behind. I had like uh, three months to write two thirds of a book, and it was going very slowly. And then, uh, and then, blacks. I started. Died. And I was useless for about... Okay, uh, okay. roll it back
0: that. about two sentences there.
2: Say again? You're, did,
0: you're did dropping you again, so... First said, Bowie uh, died, yeah, and know.
2: then... Tough, but oh, I'll just start from the beginning of the Bowie to the sense that I was way behind on, on the deadline. And then the Black Star came out at the beginning of January, oh. and that helped me write. And then he died, and I was useless for a week. And then... I just basically listened to Black Star in a loop for the next three months and wrote the last hundred pages of the book. And uh, if you read the book, it's just riddled, riddled with Bowie. I mean, everywhere. So that's another reason. If you're a Bowie fan, read the trilogy and especially book three, which is dedicated to the first Starman, uh, yes. uh, which would be him. Yes. Uh, and it's. It, from Time and all the young dudes. and There's just a ridiculous amount of... uh, In fact, Gladstone in book three even wears the fedora that Bowie wore in The Man Who Fell to Earth. He has a friend who's able to procure it it from him.
0: (laughs) It makes me wonder where that fedora is.
2: I found out. You want to know it's depressing as hell. Mm. So when I wrote the book and I had the character who's named after me, gets to own Bowie's fedora. This wasn't why I did it. But in the little back of my mind, a little piece of me said, maybe I'm putting like a little message out into the universe, and wouldn't it be funny if one day I get to own Bowie's fedora because of this? Nope. Bowie gave that fedora to Moby, who threw a house party, got really stoned, and somebody stole it. (laughs)
0: Here, yeah. Ooh. Oh, nice.
2: so now i mean I, I i wasn't really the odds weren't that great that i was going to get the fedora in the first place but they're much much worse now because of that <laughs> damn <laughs> yes you well
0: know, when moment. it's stolen the, the the line of provenance is broken so someone could just give you any old damn fedora and say this is it
2: that's true. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, if someone told me it was Bowie's fedora, I probably wouldn't ask too many questions. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or maybe well, his son will end up directing the adaptation.
1: There we go. Well, and, uh, that could happen. you know, one, th- one thing you could do is, uh, um, just find one like it. And from a spiritual standpoint, it might as well be. <laughs>
2: Here's the thing. But this is Gladstone. I, I don't know if you're like this, but there are all sorts of things that I enjoy that I would feel like too much of a douchebag to actually own. <laughs> uh, like one of those cool cigarette lighters, like that Sam Spade, that Philip Marlowe has, in, no, Sam Spade has in a Maltese Falcon, mm-hmm. like on my desk. I'd like to own that. I'd like to own fingerless gloves. I'd like to own like a wallet on a cane. I'd like to own a – in my vest pocket. I'd like to own a fedora, but not really because if you gave me any of those things, they'd wind up in the closet because I'd feel like too much of a jackass.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is why you have to have no shame.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, that was the whole point. Like, that was that was why. That was another reason. named The character Blackstone, I got him. He got to do things that I didn't have the guts to do. And I got to have other characters make fun of him for doing it because I thought he deserved to make, be made fun of for walking around uh, wearing a fedora and carrying a flask in his pocket. That's a cringy thing to do. <laughs> so,
1: no, I, I liked the I liked the the character in the first book. The uh, the Aussie uh, webcam girl. You know, yeah. A little, you know, um, a, a, a perfect example of uh, how society collapses without the internet. Uh, and she made her uh, she made her living by taking showers and for, yeah, you for know, peepers when on I, the internet.
2: Yeah, I, when I was, I'm not under uh, any delusions that I'm some famous individual. But about seven years ago, when when crack dot com became a popular website and Facebook. Uh, first exploded as a popular website, suddenly I did have quote-unquote like fans, you know, like internet fans. And it was fun for me, not just from a, uh, you know, egotistical sense. It was just fun for me to meet people from all over the world and like say hello. It was like, you know, there's a line in in book one that the internet is what I had instead of a passport. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I liked learning about, people and and interacting with these quote-unquote uh uh, fans and there was a girl from australia who literally did make money that that's where that there's nothing else about that character that's based in reality but i did meet an australian woman who who liked my stuff on cracked who 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 told me that that she made money showering for strangers and I said, Well why would you why would you do that? Because she was a very bright young woman. Mm-hmm. And she said, Well I, I have to she says what basically said, Well I have to shower anyway. So I might as, <laughs> as well
1: <get> <laughs> Yeah I remember reading that line from the book, from the first book. I have to shower anyway, yeah. what's the difference?
2: What 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 I find funny is that basically um no one in my book has a job.
1: I've noticed that <laughs> now that you mention it.
2: Yeah, that's not an accident. Uh but basically um I always I always thought that was weird. I always I whenever I'd watch anything, I'd be like, What do these people do for a living? Don't they have to be at the office? And so <laughs> I had to and that's the funny thing about the internet. It really gives people not much of a living because internet publishing is mm-hmm. it was never great and it's gets even more dire now than ever. But uh it does give people the notion of earning some money and ways to earn some money uh without having to you know put on pants no and, wait
0: and uh, in the se- second book um a, a an important character is going on job interviews and and gets a job in another town
2: that's right right that's right boy you're so good i, uh, I don't care you you could spoil stuff but yes an an important character does that tries to interview at google and uh And right, and that character is very much part of the 20th century world. You know, not part of the 21st century world. They're hostile almost, uh, uh, to, to the, uh, to the, to the internet. And, and you're right, and she's not like Gladstone, she's not like Toby, and, and Rosdower, who is the ultimate company man, who is the ultimate put my suit and tie on and go to work in the morning, His liberation really comes in book three when he's no longer working. That's right. So, so I guess you could. There might be some sort of, I don't know. You know, I don't want to be Freudian, but I might have some antipathy (laughs) to to working for a living.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah,
2: but but it's true. But that's the thing too. And in, in the inverse, Gladstone actually. I don't think this is much of a spoiler. In book three, Gladstone actually gets a job. At least, in the beginning of the book, mm, we nice. see he's. Working,
0: I guess, know yeah, could.
2: Call and it. he's a better man for it. And uh, people, oh, you, the character's named Gladstone. Are you Gladstone? No, I think I'm every bit as much, if not more, uh, Rosdower than Gladstone. I really feel like I, I split myself in two between those two characters. Kind of one of them is the the writer, poet, whiny, (laughs) screw up. And the Mm -hmm. the other part is the guy who, you know, puts on business casual clothes every day and earns a job to take care of his kids. And uh, uh, my kids, Ross Dower doesn't have kids. It'd be great if I could get my fictional characters to take care of my kids. (laughs) Sensational, then I wouldn't have to work. But I really felt I split myself between two characters as extremely as possible. and in book three, it is very much about putting them together, literally, about having them learn from each other. So I kind of uh, – I think Gladstone becomes a whole person in book three, and he does so with the help of Rostauer.
1: Well, it's it's uh, sort of your own personal journey as well, isn't it? I mean over the, the course of writing three books that are this deeply intertwined and that you've given this much thought to. Uh, you.
2: Yeah, it's therapy.
0: Yeah, it kind of. Yeah, getting paid for your therapy, priceless. <laughs>
2: yeah, that is true. I, I, it. You know, I'm very, 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 very lucky uh, that I got to write three books that are in one series that are in three different styles that are filled with dumb, dumb. Dirty, filthy jokes, and also, you know, at least as far as I'm concerned, more high minded, almost philosophical, existential concepts, and everything in between. And I was allowed to do that. Uh, And I don't know how it happened. I mean, it just, I sold the first book with an agent, and the other two just came from an email I wrote to my editor. I just mentioned offhandedly that I had uh, ideas for two more books. And he said, oh, I'd like to hear more about that. I wasn't trying to sell them. I wrote him a page and a half email about, well, you know, book two, I kind of see this happening, and then book three, this. And they made me an offer. Before book one even came out, they made me an offer for books two and three. (laughs) And you might might say, oh, wow, you're the luckiest man in the world. And I would say, you haven't met me because I'm an ass. And I was pissed off, actually. (laughs) Because... Writing a book takes a long time, and it's a lot of work, and I was afraid to do it because I thought I'd have nothing to show for it, meaning career-wise or financially, Mm -hmm. and I thought, well, no one would ask me to write books two and three unless book one was already a huge success, so I won't have to worry about wasting years of my life for nothing because it's going to be money in the bank because they won't even let me do it unless everyone bought the first book. And when they offered me the chance to write two and three before book one even came out, it was I, – I was on a train and, and my agent called me and I – I don't mean I lost it. I wasn't foaming at the mouth. I wasn't calling names. But she just wanted – she wanted to say to me, isn't this great? And I said, yes, where do I sign? And instead I, like, talked to her ear for an hour about what a problem this was. And I had to make the decision if I wanted to commit. And I I ultimately decided to commit. And, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if they'll be adapted into movies. I've had meetings. I've met some – Incredible people that I never thought I'd have phone conversations with about the possibility of them being adapted. I don't know if the whole world will ever read these books, but what I realized recently was that I wrote three books. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you wrote three books. That, that should sort of be enough.
1: That's that's pretty awesome all by itself,
2: right? I shouldn't, you know, anything else is is gravy. Not only did I write three books, I wrote three books that I like, and I wrote them in the way I want to write them, and I wrote them for me, and I never expected to have that opportunity in my life. So to start worrying about whether or not you know Netflix is going to option it as a series or not is kind of stupid, although just for the story, I will tell you that Netflix wanted to option it as (laughs) as a series, (laughs) and I said – I said no Uh, Because it had none of my characters in it Oh, It was just Takes place in San Francisco And a bunch of 20 somethings Have to live without the internet And I was like why are you offering me money This has nothing to do with my book
0: Wow that's pretty far fetched Isn't it
2: Yeah and they said well you you know what's good One of the characters is Mark Zuckerberg But because there's no internet he's broke And I said why would he be broke Right? He's Mark Zuckerberg.
0: He's, He's already done. got the money. I mean, exactly.
2: I said, there's no internet. In the and he withdrew all his money in cash and set it on fire. It didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And then the reply to that was, Come well, on. you know, it's like friends, but without internet. And I was like, oh, this is terrible.
0: Friends didn't have internet.
2: <laughs> it was, I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm telling you. It was, it was awful. In fact, by the way, so you read book three, Susan. I, I took a shitty joke about them. In book three – so in book one, is it's a journal. Book two, his journal goes paper viral and everyone starts reading it like a book. Book three, producers want to make a movie out of that journal. And uh, there's that one Australian billionaire – who, who wants to make it into a film? But he suggests making it, setting it in San Francisco, about a bunch of twenty somethings. Oh, that I was, see.
0: That was that real. That
2: my shitty job taking a shot at it uh, <laughs> Oh
0: man,
1: that's great.
0: <laughs> art becomes <laughs> life, becomes art. That's yeah, which is why awesome. I started by asking, "Is this? Are you sure this is fiction?"
2: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, right, right. You know, like so. I mean. I will say this. The person that Gladstone ends up being in the final pages of the book I think is very similar to who I am. Uh, uh, And, you know, my ex-wife's middle name is Romea, and so there's certainly some Romea in that character. And uh, I told you about the the webcam girl. You always take uh, things from life. But no, Mm -hmm. there's no, there's no, and and one of my best friends' name is Toby, but he's nothing like that Toby character.
0: Thank goodness.
2: Yeah, so, oh, and I'm not, you know, I'm also not a functional alcoholic or delusional or, you know, Uh a lot of differences.
1: Yeah, that's, I am holding in my hand uh, what is probably four years of your life. Uh, I have uh, notes from the Internet Apocalypse, Agents of the Internet Apocalypse, and Reports on the Internet Apocalypse. Uh, the three books of the Internet Apocalypse series, they are from uh, Thomas Dunn Books of St. Martin's Press. And you can get them wherever fine books are sold. Thank you website. so much.
2: Yeah, the website is www.internet-apocalypse.com, and it links you to all the bookstores that carry it.
1: Wayne Gladstone, author of these books, thank you so much for joining us on this evening's episode of The Event Horizon. It has been a real pleasure having you with us.
2: Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.
1: You have been listening to episode 156 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for December 9th, 2016. Your hosts have been Susan Fox and Jean Turnbow, and our guest this evening has been science fiction writer and humorist Wayne Gladstone, author of the Internet Apocalypse Trilogy, available from Thomas Dunn Books of St. Martin's Press. This episode will air again on Sunday, December 10th, 2016, at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and, of course, on our own website, kryptonradio.com, as podcasts. Krypton Radio is substantially listener-supported. And if you enjoyed this evening's episode of The Event Horizon, please consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash kryptonradio. We really need your support. If you are an artist, writer, actor, or other creator, and you would like to appear as a guest on The Event Horizon, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter at at KryptonRadio.com. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry, and the Captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is Copyright 2016 by Krypton Media Group, Incorporated. The Event Horizon, it's Sci-Fi for your Wi-Fi.